0: again, Whenever I'm feeling a little stressed out, maybe that's how you're feeling, but whenever I'm feeling a little stressed out, Kelly always says to me, why don't you go and put some wrestling on? <laughs> I love watching the wrestling. It brings me great joy as I suspend my disbelief and watch... Uh, Uh, big men slapping against each other. It sounds a bit weird when you think about it but that's how they describe it. And what they do in wrestling is a bit strange. It's a bit strange because, well there's all sorts of strange things about it, but one of the strange things is that you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and it seems to go for hours and actually it does go for hours, sometimes four or five hours at a time, until finally you get to the main event of the evening. And if you're still conscious, sometimes I'm not, I'm on the lounge already asleep or something like that, uh, you'll see the main event of the wrestling card. Now this is not unique to wrestling, is it? You go to a concert and you see the under undercard and then you finally see the main event that you came to see. It used to be the case, of course, with going to see a movie or a film in the cinema. You'd sometimes get some shorts at the beginning that were actual Stories before you get the, the main event. And here in this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 9, we have the main event of Jesus' ministry. The main event of Jesus' ministry. We get to the heartbeat of what is going on. In God's kindness, this is the passage that we've got before us today knowing all of the other things that are going on. It gives me the ability to speak right to the heart of what Jesus came To do. We've discussed this week about how we would organize the service. How we would organize the service today to make an announcement like that that might shock you and then also to have you hear God's word. There's no easy way to do any of that. But we've decided to respond to what we've heard before by praying and hearing God's word. And in God's grace, we're going to get to the heart, the main event of what Jesus came to do. He came to bring a new way to forgive sinners and to call sinners to follow Him. And there seems nothing better that we can talk about for the rest of our time together this morning. And so I'm going to pray for us, that we might be able, uh, in God's grace, to put the distractions aside, that we might get to God's Word, and that we might see the main event of what He has come to do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, please uh, take away any distractions, so we can come to your word and understand and listen to it, make a sense of it, and to build our life upon it. Well, we thank you for speaking to us, and we ask please that you would help me to speak in a way that's clear and makes sense today, and you would help us all just to take in a small piece of what you're telling us today in Matthew chapter 9, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as Kylie mentioned so well, last week uh, we met Jesus in the region of the Gadarenes, a Gentile region where he cast out some demons into a herd of pigs. And we heard at the end of that passage that they begged him to leave their region. <coughs> they begged Jesus to leave that region and so he does. He gets into the boat and he crosses over to the other side. And this time we see him with a paralysed man. Another, man, another paralysed man is brought to him. Close to death. Now, we've already seen this, haven't we? Not only in the Matthew's Gospel, but in this small series of Matthew 8 to 10. We've already seen a paralyzed person, the servant, the centurion, who was needing to be healed because they were close to death as well. Maybe this person had heard about this. After all, Jesus in verse 5 of chapter 8 was in Capernaum. And here he crosses over to his own city. That was one of the cities that he'd spent a lot of time in. Possibly it's exactly the same place. And possibly a different group of people have heard what Jesus had done with this previous paralyzed man and hope that they could do the same with his friend. And So they bring the paralyzed man to Jesus in full expectation and hope that he would heal him just as he healed the other paralyzed man. It's obvious what they're bringing him to Jesus for. Jesus doesn't give him the obvious healing. It's not what he receives at all. Look at chapter 9 verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's a strange response, isn't it? He wants to be healed. His friends want him to be healed, but He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, right from the beginning, it it reminds us that something is actually more important than physical healing. Jesus is here saying, your your sins are of greater need. You need your sins forgiven. But Jesus also knows what he's saying, creating some controversy around him. Irritates the scribes. They're not happy with what is going on here. Look at verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. He irritates the scribes because only God can forgive sin. And only God can forgive sin by an elaborate method. Sacrifice and the temple and the system and the ritual. And no human being can just turn up and pronounce forgiveness for another person. And so it amounts to blasphemy. You're doing what only God can do. And even then, God can only do it by all of these systems. I we're told in verse 4 that Jesus knows what they're thinking. Either supernaturally or just because it's obvious. You know, when there's murmurings over in the corner, don't you, what's going on? One way or the other, Jesus knows. And he says to them, "'Why do you think evil in your hearts? "'For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven?' or to rise and walk. Jesus poses a question to them, which is easier to say? Now it's funny, isn't it, for us, in our modern world, we think it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. That's easier. Because you can't really prove that. And it's just words. It's actually far harder to say, get up and walk. But in the ancient world, most likely it goes the other way. These scribes knew of people being healed, perhaps just even a few weeks before. But not only that, the prophets had healed. People in the Bible before them had healed. The Old Testament figures had done healings of various kinds, but no one had forgiven sin. No one. But it doesn't really matter either way, does it? Whether you take it in the modern sense or the ancient sense, Jesus says, I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. Verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Jesus has the authority to do both, doesn't he? To heal, as we saw back in chapter 8 but to forgive sins, as we see here in chapter 9. And he does it with what he will do in the future on the cross, by his atonement and by people trusting in him. As it says in verse 2, he saw their faith. And what this little section of scripture reminds us is what Jesus came to do. That's why I'm so pleased that we've got this part of scripture in front of us today. It brings us to the main event of what Jesus came to do to get first things first. The Christian faith can often become about so many different things. Can it It can easily become about all sorts of different things. It can become about the church or leaders. It can become about serving. It can become about growing. It can become about holiness. All of those things are essentially important. They're very, very important, but they're not the main event. The main event of the Bible, the main event of the story, getting first things first, is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. You've got to get first things first. You've got to get things in their right order. Now I know I've told you this story before, but seeing as I'm leaving, it's like a greatest hits tour, so you can hear it again. (laughs) When I first got my poo plates... I drove to the what's now the Aldi car park from my home in Engadine in my mum and dad's car to the underneath part of the Aldi car park. I drove the car there, went had a little CD shop, and came back to the car and the car wouldn't start. I had the radio on really loud between home and the Aldi car park, and I thought that maybe I'd left it on in some way, or left the lights on, or done something stupid. So I called the NRMA. It took them two hours to come out. They asked me to pop the bonnet. They looked under the bonnet for a little while and then they said, could you please just put the car in park and then maybe start it again. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it ticked over perfectly fine and I came out there with a very red face. But you've got to get first things first. You've got to put it in park before you can start the car. And you and I need to always remember Jesus came to forgive sinners. First things first. This is the main event of Jesus' ministry. Forgiveness of sins. And we must get right things in their order. There's nothing wrong with any of the other things of the Christian life and the Christian faith. But if you miss that Jesus came to forgive sins, you won't even start the car. People say to me all the time that these other things... Church, what do I think about it? Leaders, what do I think about them? Serving, what do I think about that? Growing, holiness, all of those things are important, but they're not where it starts. They're not the main events. Jesus came to forgive sinners. But secondly, in verses 9 to 13, we see that Jesus calls sinners to follow Him. Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Here's Matthew. He's a tax collector. He was a Jewish man, but he was taxing his own nation and then giving the money to the Gentile overlords. Just imagine what that would be like. An Australian, one of us, giving our own money and collecting it off us and then giving it to some other national overlord. Imagine how we'd feel about that person. We'd hate them. We'd think they were a traitor to our country. What's more, they were a cheat. Matthew was a cheat. He was stealing. (coughs) He was unclean because he was spending time with the Gentiles so much. And this Matthew is the writer of this book, this gospel that we read right here. The Matthew that was called to follow Jesus and he did straight away. It's like he dropped everything and started to follow Jesus. Now it's startling, isn't it? If you were going to create a a crack squad to take over the world, who would you choose? Now no doubt, Matthew would have had some skill. He would have had some skill in accuracy because he was a tax collector, he would have had accuracy and languages. He would have been able to speak a number of languages. He would have been able to keep good records. That's why he was able to write such an accurate gospel. But he's a controversial figure. And he's not necessarily one that you'd put in your crack squad straight away. Again, I uh, promised myself that there'd be no sporting analogies for 12 months, but I can throw that in. <laughs> Sydney Swans uh, famously, I won't repeat the phrase, but the Sydney Swans famously had a no idiot policy when it came to having people in their squad. That wasn't the word. That wasn't the word. Yeah, <laughs> in <laughs> <laughs> another word, but that was their policy, and the reason for the policy was we don't want any, any controversial figures in our club, we don't want people that are going to cause problems in the community and cause problems for the club, and we want the club to be together and to stick together. And That's not what Jesus is doing here. He picks a controversial figure. A man with lots of problems around him, with lots of flies on him, if you want to put it that way. This guy, Matthew, is not who you would naturally pick to follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus calls sinners to follow him. See, the next scene bears it out a little more. Probably the next scene has Jesus at Matthew's house. And he's there and he's reclining at the table and he's eating the food and a a little discussion starts up. Look at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees are funny here, aren't they? There's just a little detail. Instead of Talking to Jesus directly, they go to his disciples instead. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, look, I'll take it from here. Let me answer the question. Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, because I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Jesus came to save sinners, to call sinners to follow him. He's already called Matthew to follow him. And in order for Jesus to save sinners, he needs to entangle himself with sinners. Now we need to pause just for a minute here. Sometimes this passage is used for our own world to excuse sin. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus hung out with with tax collectors and sinners, and so should we, and just do the same things that they do. Now, of course, it's true we should entangle ourselves with <coughs> sinners as well in order to share the message of Jesus with them. But we need to understand how Jesus talks in. He talks about those who are sick. We've already seen Jesus with sick people. Sick people need fixing. Not just tolerating or dealing with. The healing ministry of Jesus shows us this. When someone is sick, they need to be changed. And when someone is spiritually sick, they need to be changed. But this does not mean that we take the spiritually sick, we take the sinners and we push them aside and do not entangle ourselves with them. That was the Pharisees' problem. No, Jesus spends time with sinners in order to call them to follow him and in order to be transformed by him. This little quote from from Don Carson probably puts it best. It turns out that the people who think they are worthy of the Messiah's attention are no more worthy than the socially repulsive people whom they dismiss. And both kinds of people are in need of his mercy, even if they are not worthy of his attention. From this perspective, when we say that Jesus came to call the despised and the disgusting elements in society, it actually turns out no one is exempt. Jesus came, as John Calvin said, to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of wickedness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew a, uh, to a blessed immortality those who were debased from disgusting vices. But then, is any of us exempt? And if we think we are, we face not only the conclusion that Christ did not come for us, but also the intense rebuke that aligns us with the apostates of old. See, we need to remember Jesus came for us because we're sinners. One of the biggest problems that we can make is that we think of ourselves as church attenders, better than other people, and not sinners after all. But we think of ourselves soberly, remembering that we ourselves are sinners, sick people in need of a physician, sinners in need of a saviour. It's why we confess our sins each week, not as a ritual, but to remember who we are. And therefore moving us to grateful thanks in ever-increasing Measure. It's true to say, isn't it, that when you become a Christian, you understand that you need to be saved from sin. But if you grow as a Christian, you see your sin more and more and understand your need for forgiveness more and more and your need for gratitude more and more. Which stops us from being self-righteous. We all know, don't we? It's not as if the, the sinners are out there in the world and not in here in this building sort of to stop us ever thinking of ourselves in a haughty way better than others. We are just simply beggars who know where there's a place to get some free food. <coughs> and if you think today that you're not good enough to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus, when well, you need to remember this, Jesus came to call sinners. Sinners like you and me who sees all of our sin, both the internal and the external, and invites us to follow him, providing forgiveness and transformation. So Jesus came to forgive sinners and call sinners to follow him. If you've been attending church for your whole life, but never understood that you're a sinner in need of salvation, today is the day to see Jesus' main event, to understand what it really means to be called to follow him. And to drop everything and do that. So as we get to the final section of this passage, while the Pharisees asked why Jesus would eat with the tax collectors and it sinners, it's John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, who ask why doesn't Jesus fast? Why does he eat in the way that he does at all? Now they're a bit more bold. They've got a better relationship with Jesus. They ask him directly. Look at verse fourteen. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The disciples directly address Jesus. And they direct him about a Jewish tradition that's that's a tradition that normally goes around mourning. But it had taken on a religious life of its own, this fasting tradition that was in the Jewish, uh, Jewish faith. Now, Jesus is not against fasting. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Matt brought us a few months ago, Jesus taught how to fast. He's not against it then. He's not against it now. But Jesus says, this is not the time for fasting. It's not the time for fasting because something new is happening, Jesus says. And he uses two parables, if you like, to describe why this is a new thing that is happening. First of all, he talks about a wedding. Imagine going to a wedding and deciding that all the guests should fast at the wedding rather than celebrate. It makes no sense. Beef or chicken, nothing thanks. (laughs) Which would you do? Jesus says, "We're, we're at wedding season. It's wedding time. I am the groom, is what he's saying. Now there's a heavy Christology in this and we could go into this for a long time but right throughout the Old Testament God talks about himself as the husband to his people and there's lots of passages but we won't go into it today but what Jesus is saying is I am that husband. I am that groom. So don't fast while the groom is here. It's wedding time. I'm doing something new. And then there's a second parable about the old and the new. Old wineskins, new wineskins, old fabric, new fabric. Jesus is saying when you combine the two, there will be destruction as a result. But he says, I am doing something new. I'm taking the old and setting it aside, and I'm doing something new and better. No longer will there be a priest and a temple And a sacrifice. That I will be the priest in the temple and the sacrifice. And while Jesus doesn't spell all of this out at this point, the book of Hebrews will make it really clear to us about what Jesus has done to fulfil all of these parts of the new way. Jesus says, there's a new way coming. It's to be forgiving sinners and calling sinners to follow me. And this is the main event of Jesus' ministry. See, in our own day we can be led to think that the main event of Jesus' ministry is doing miracles, so we should do miracles. Jesus did healing, so we should do healing. Jesus did affirmation of people who are sinners, so we should go out and affirm people who are sinners. Jesus did uh, some sort of advocacy for those who are in hard times, so we should give ourselves to heavy advocacy for those who are in hard times. None of those things are necessarily bad, but the church is in danger of making that the main game. But it's not the main event. The main event is right here. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so I'm glad to be able to remind you on a day like today that Jesus came to save, forgive and call sinners to follow him. Doing a new thing in the world. And making a new thing in your life. So do not put any of these things in the main event. Of your life, come back day after day, time after time, and see the main event that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. Well, I'm going to pray, and we'll sing our final song together before we go into morning to and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us to this passage today. Please impart into our hearts and into our minds this main event of Jesus' ministry once again that He came to save sinners. We thank You for all the other good things that are there in our life and even in our Christian lives. But please, may they not be in the first place. Please, may they remain down the tree, down down the track from Jesus' main event of His saving ministry, forgiving sinners and calling sinners like us, to follow him. May we never lose sight of that main event and continue to put our trust in his saving work. We thank you for all that he's done for us. We continue to do.